and we are live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Translators on Air. My name is Dmitry Karnyukhov. I'm your host. Uh, Join me today, my incredible co-host, Elena Tereshenkova. Hi, Elena. Hi, guys. And our guest today, Isabel Sauza. Hi, Isabel. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for accepting our invitation, Isabel, and joining us for this webinar. Uh, Isabel is an industry expert, uh, academic author, instructor, and researcher on translation and interpreting. Uh, she served as Secretary General for the International Federation of Translators, as President and later as Executive Director of the International Medical Interpre Interpreters Association. Uh, she taught interpreting uh, for Bridging the Gap, uh, I2B, Boston University, Cambridge University, and Osaka University. Uh, she, she's also a published author. Her first book, Intercultural Medi uh, Mediation in Healthcare, Describing the Cultural Work of Medical Interpreters, was published in 2016. And she's currently working on her second book uh, uh, titled uh, Intercultural Communication for Healthcare Providers. Uh, she's uh, an active member of numerous translation and interpreters associations, and she's passionate about promoting languages, language access and, as a human right. And in today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about what uh, the cultural aspect of the medical interpreters' work involves, uh, how their work influences the organization they serve, and how they should go about their cultural work. But before we jump to the topic of today's conversation, I would like to make a few announcements, as always. Uh, the fifth season of Translators on Air has been sponsored by our friends at Smartcat. Smartcat developed a great uh, platform where you can find more work, find new clients, uh, collaborate with other translators, and use the CAT tool absolutely for free. If this is something you're interested in, check out SmartCat by clicking the green button below this video, or if you're watching or listening to this in the recording, you can always visit the first link in the description. All right, we have quite a few people tuning in. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, Ina, Sylvia. Hi, Jakob. Uh, Hilary, uh, Eva, Daniela, uh, Bettina, Stanley, uh, Max, and Monica, Franca, Mercedes, Rosemary, Deborah, Veronica, Giselle, Iliana, Adriana, Reina, Elma, uh, Inava, Eliana, and everyone who is watching this in a recording. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, who never attended to these webinars, let me explain how everything works. This is a live webinar. You can actively participate in the discussion by using the chat window on right-hand side to say hi and hello. And if you have a specific question and you want Isabel, Elena, and me to answer a question, we have a dedicated ask a question section below this video stream. You can post your questions in there. You can upload the questions that you really like. And of course, these webinars are best enjoyed with friends and colleagues. We still have a few spots left. So if you're not super busy at the moment, uh, you can quickly grab the link for this webinar and share it on Facebook, Twitter, on LinkedIn, and invite your friends and colleagues to join us today. Because more people, more fun. All right. Thank you, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed this webinar. Isabel, over to you. How are you? Thank you. Um, well, um, I had uh, received a few questions, as, and I saw that they're already posted there. And I guess I'll start with the first one, which is, you know, how would I describe the cultural work? And I would uh, first want to say that um, interpreters are usually viewed by the public as linguistic converters. Um, anyone who appears to interpret is called an interpreter by the public. So it makes it very difficult for us to explain our work. And um, we see that a lot when uh, providers tell us to just interpret word for word or just repeat what I say. And unfortunately, 
sometimes we can be trained also to be so um, parroting that you know we kind of do a disservice to our uh, work. Um, I myself uh, decided to study the, the cultural uh, work of interpreters and thought I knew everything about it and, and I found out I, I knew very little um, because there wasn't a lot uh, about it other than you know interpreters understand cultural differences and sometimes they have to intervene. Um, so the, the standards of practice, and I want to, I might uh, read a few experts of, of certain documents, just because I want the interview to be rooted in, in data and not just in my personal opinions. Um, and if we look at the primary function of, of the medical interpreter, even in the standards of practice, it's not necessarily just to interpret accurately. Uh, the IMIA standards of practice, for example, says that the primary function of the medical interpreter is to make possible communication between a healthcare provider and a patient. So making possible communication means you're going to have to enable it, you're going to have to facilitate it. it. It's about communication, it's not about interpreting back and forth. And it further states, if all the provider and patient needed was to achieve the goals, uh, to achieve the goals of the clinical encounter, to have linguistic conversion, then the interpreter's role would be fulfilled just by interpreting phrase by phrase. Um, the standards, however, go beyond um, conversion and recognize the complexities of interpreting. And this is on the standards, and it's basically saying, you know, interpreters understand the importance of language in evaluating and diagnosing symptoms. And therefore, we can't just be a simple black box converter. Um, we need to know, and this is again, written on the standards uh, back in 1995 when they were created, this is nothing new. Uh, they need to know how to engage both providers and patients effectively and efficiently in accessing the nuances of the hidden social cultural assumptions embedded in each other's languages. So engaging providers and patients sounds more like facilitating to me than interpreting. Um, so interpreting is part of our work um, but oftentimes we give that its full importance and forget about all the other components, including the cultural one. So if I had to define um, the cultural work of a medical interpreter, I would say it involves any attitudes, responsibilities, actions, behaviors, and activities that address uh, the cultural dimensions of the uh, interpreter-mediated uh, encounter. And the purpose of it is to bridge the cultural gap or divide. Sometimes people only talk about the gap, but sometimes there's a real divide. There's a real uh, difference of opinion, which then goes into conflict and cultural conflict and how to work through that. So, you know, if we see ourselves more as facilitators, mediators, or enablers of communication, our role changes quite a bit from linguistic converters and, and you know, just interpret model, which is really the conduit model which has been used and um, been extrapolated from past research into what medical interpreters do. So, and I'm, I'm a classic example. I was trained as a translator uh, from a linguistic training background, for, worked as a translator for many years until I decided to work into, get into interpreting. And I really thought um, interpreting was the same in every setting. The setting changes, the terminology changes, but my work is the same. You know, mm -hmm. I'm interpreting linguistically, that's hard enough. And I'm not minimizing at all what that is, but um, 
it takes a while uh, unless you're working in a in an environment on a regular basis uh, to the level of being a, a specialized interpreter you really can't um, understand the goals of the clinical encounter so it wasn't until i worked for several uh, years as a medical interpreter that i really started understanding uh, what the medical goals were uh, understanding the whole expectation that providers had of me that went beyond simply repeating back and forth, which isn't what we do anyway. And I also want to say that um, most of the literature, most of the interpreter leadership is sometimes uh, primarily Western cultures. Uh, my languages are Spanish, Portuguese, and French. There's not going to be uh, the same amount of cultural distance in Western-Western dialogue that there are in East-West dialogues, mm -hmm. for example. And only interpreters that work in some of these other languages can really understand this because they experience a, a much greater or maybe religious differences. It can actually be uh, create a, a much larger cultural gap than a Western-Western interaction. So we can't assume that our experiences cover all the, the differences out there because, again, um, some interpreters have a lot more work in this area than, than others just based on you know, the, the cultural uh, dynamics of the provider and the patient. So, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions um, as we go along, but that's just basically, you know, what we're calling the cultural work of interpreters, what they actually do, not the cultural issue itself, but what are the tasks that they perform? Uh, what are the strategies that they use um, in bridging the, those cultural gaps? You mentioned, you mentioned strategies. Uh, what are some mm -hmm. of the strategies that in interpreters can use in limiting uh -huh. this cultural gap when we work? Sure. Um, it, it was out of the strategies that I extracted some of the tasks that interpreters uh, relayed. And, you know, and I want to say that, again, some of the, uh, you know, what I'm stating here, it's either coming from the published standards that are already adopted by all healthcare interpreters, or it comes from my study, which was a five-year study, and there were 458 participants working in 25 countries. I did interviews in five countries. And so the data I'm talking about is not, these tasks and strategies are not uh, simply what I think they're doing or what I observed them do. This is what interpreters themselves said that they were doing. And some of the strategies that they undergo is, for example, the first one is pre-session. In the pre-session, they have to set the protocol of, of how the interpretation will work. Often, providers or patients haven't worked with an interpreter, or if they have, it might have been a, a, a lay individual who was called the interpreter, or maybe they worked with an interpreter that actually you know, was working in a quite a, a limited way. So we can't assume just because they've had an interpreter that they really understand our role, and et cetera. So some in, uh, interpreters mentioned that in the pre-session, they mentioned that they're gonna, uh, they might have to intervene if there's a cultural misunderstanding. Again, just by bringing the word culture on a, on a pre-session, on an introduction, um, you're establishing that you're there to bridge the gap, whereas if you don't. So that was one of the strategies they used. Sometimes in the post-session, there was an issue that came up, they would address the cultural issue after. So again, the cultural issue 
addressed before, during, or after the session. It's not always about intervention um, during the interpretation. Uh, the other uh, strategy that they discussed was um, assisting the speaker in developing a cultural explanation about an issue. So they know the issue, but instead of just going out there and um, you know, teaching everybody about what the issue is, they always give priority to the provider or the patient to actually explain this issue. Um, so that was, again, one of the strategies, and it's in the standards of practice. They're simply doing what they're uh, being told to do. Um, the other ones that are not seen, and this was interesting because some of the things they described, I would have never been able to see if I had just been a, a researcher observing their work. And two of the, uh, three, three actually, of the invisible, I call them invisible tasks, are number one, they have, they have to assess the dynamics and the urgency or centrality of the cultural issue. So while they're interpreting, they're thinking, oh, there's a cultural issue here, but is it important? How is it gonna affect the, the flow of communication? Should I bring it up now? Should I bring it up, up later? Should I bring it up at all? Um, and this is, they're thinking this while they're interpreting. Um, the other, uh, so one is the best time and method to raise the issue, the dynamics or urgency, if it needs to be raised, and then paying attention to verbal and nonverbal cues uh, and cultural needs. Um, some of these are in the standards and basically they're doing all this while they're interpreting and, and with it, paying attention to nonverbals, I have to say that uh, in phone interpreting, even though the majority of nonverbals is tonal and you can still get a lot from just listening to both patient and provider, it's just not the same as being able to get the nonverbals that are visible. And that's why I think video interpreting is becoming um, more popular because it really allows for interpreters to engage again in a, in a more active way. Uh, a few more, uh, interjecting and making an issue explicit to both parties. And again, they have to explain it to both parties. One, they're giving an explanation. And in the other case, they're just explaining what they spoke to with the other party for transparency. Um, providing the, prompting the provider or patient to search for clarity explaining a cultural issue to the provider or patient because they requested you to do that. Um, and one interesting um, strategy was to reformulate the message so that it's culturally appropriate. Actually, many sign language interpreters said this, that uh, again, we don't interpret words. So we're interpreting meaning. And if we know that um, something came out as perhaps uh, informal and rude, but you understand that for that communication, it needs to be more formal. That's the expectation of the listener. Some interpreters will actually change the register, and that's a whole other discussion, but that is a change of register so that the message will be more culturally appropriate. Um, or they'll add something. So for example, you might say something that is obvious in, in your country of service, but it's not for the other speakers. So they will add and say, I'm just going to give an example, you know, um, do you drink alcoholic beverages? This has to be asked of all patients in the U.S. So they'll actually add material, again, for the purpose of being culturally competent, and that has nothing to do with completeness or adding for the interpretation. That's one of the strategies they use. So I thought it was quite interesting that some of these strategies are synchronous with interpreting, 
uh, other strategies are uh, basically done before or after an assignment. And last, some are done within the interpretation, um, where in that case, some might argue there's not enough transparency and perhaps the provider doesn't you know, realize that an extra explanation is given. And I'm not arguing what's right or wrong here. I'm just giving um, information on what interpreters are doing and are saying are the reasons for doing those things. So those would be some of the things. Um, and the standards talk about, you know, many things that interpreters should do, like seeking to uh, update their cultural knowledge of patients and the CHIA standards, or um, if you perceive a provider's questions as culturally inappropriate, but no disrespect was intended, you know, an interpreter usually intervenes, sometimes in a subtle way. Some, some interpreters are very hardcore and they'll just say, you know what, I'm just gonna interpret it, it's not my, my issue. Um, but it hurts the provider-patient rapport, which is one of the tasks of the interpreters, according to the... So some of these um, tasks can even be conflicted with each other and the interpreter has to decide, you know, um, what they're gonna do and why. And I think people don't give us enough credit for all the decision-making we have to do while interpreting, um, people just think that we're just, a, you know, uh, connecting words and, and that we don't even know what we're talking about. Don't understand that we are making decisions. Um, it is a conscious effort and language has to be recreated and, and it's messaging, especially in a dialogic environment such as healthcare, which can be a little different from legal. In legal, it can be very structured. You can't ask for clarification, only the, interviewee or deponent can ask for a clarification. So there might be more rigid scenarios, but in healthcare, it's an incredibly dynamic dialogue where the provider is constantly feeding and responding based on the, um, what the patient stated. So it becomes a, a real dynamic conversation where there's no, no structure at all. Questions aren't prepared beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, so I hope that that helps a little bit in understanding some of the strategies that they use. Uh, you already mentioned one of the cultural issues when uh, the register is, is not a culturally appropriate to someone who is, uh, for example, for the patient. Uh, can you give some other examples of uh, cultural issues that medical interpreters have to deal with during their work? Sure. Well, um, the, the study I did generated 32 um, cases. Now, there are a lot of books on treating patients of different cultures. I mean, and they really go into, and their books, just about one cultural issue, such as Fadiman's book on, um, you know, the, the mom child. Uh, so I'm just going to read out a couple. Um, out of the 32, I'm going to select four, and hopefully you guys have some some questions about it. And these are, again, um, in the interpreter's words, okay? Now, I didn't spend too much time going into the issue, but I wanted to know what are the types of scenarios that they uh, encounter these issues? And I'm gonna read out a few, and these are all common sense. I'm sure that most of the interpreters listening have you know, uh, experienced them at some point. Um, so some of them have to do with alternative medicine, 
the use of alternative medicine, sometimes in mm. conjunction with uh, biomedicine. Uh, communication styles is a big one. Prescription practices, uh, treatments um, that may be different in different countries. Um, religious differences, uh, diversity within a cultural group, uh, where the interpreter might have to explain that within this um, cultural group, there, there are many different cultural groups. And sometimes a provider might not realize that. Uh, a typical example is just how Hispanics can be, you know, put in one big um, balloon when in reality, the, cultures can vary quite a bit. Um, and that's a term only existing in, in America because nobody outside of America would lump all the Spanish speakers into that group. Um, female modesty, uh, timeliness, perceived health problem. Some cultures might um, perceive a lot of their problems in their head. Others will uh, perceive uh, gastric issues uh, in, in think that many of the issues could be gastric. Some cultures value a lot nervous system issues. So that could be an issue. Uh, blood removal, nutrition, cultural practices in child rearing or childbirth. Um, and then just the healthcare system utilization that can actually affect the patient's health. Um, so those are some of the issues. But let me read you one of the, um, and it's about blood removal. So this was a patient that was interviewed in, uh, in Israel, uh, I mean, uh, an interpreter. And uh, basically, she says, pa uh, patient expectations were not congruent um, with the care in the country. Uh, patient want, wanted blood draws, and all my patients want blood draws uh, to improve their health. Basically, mm. um, it's very common in certain cultures to you know, to draw blood as a means to purify yourself, to get your toxins away. Um, this is a very common treatment in Ethiopia. The doctor wanted blood tests every six months. And the patient basically, patients, what they were doing is they were saying, if you don't draw blood, I'm going to get myself hospitalized. And they were appearing in the emergency room just to get their blood withdrawn. So the interpreter um, says the following. I asked for a team meeting to discuss this common request, which was frustrating to the providers. I suggested that they accommodate um, these patients or they will continue coming to the emergency room or trying to get hospitalized just for that reason, to get their blood drawn. Three clinics did a pilot and they now draw just 0.1 cc's of blood from the patient regularly. Now other clinics are doing the same to keep patients happy and avoid unnecessary hospitalizations. Now, I found this particular um, case very interesting because here it's not just the interpreter intervening in an interpreted session. Mm -hmm. The interpreter is asking for a team meeting and having dialogues with um, providers of that institution as a representative of the community. So in this case, they were really a community agent in addition to being what some researchers call a bilingual professional, which is explaining certain things to the, um, to the uh, providers. And the fact that they would even make that change just yeah. for the sake of a relationship with the community is quite amazing to me. But this was happening in Israel. And um, mm. how does it affect the care? Well, it saved money. Um, 
hospitalizations and the patients are happier with the institution, they feel understood, they feel culturally accepted, um, and that pro providers understand the issue and have found a, somehow a compromise or a solution to the issue. Now I ask you, does this institution, is it a little bit more culturally competent now than it was before? It probably right. is. And yeah. basically, we've changed the paradigm of everybody has to adopt our protocols to uh, culturally competent. And in Israel, just like in the US and Australia and some other countries, uh, there are cultural competency guidelines now for healthcare institutions. So they're trying really hard and they have a very diverse uh, population themselves. So let me read you another one that's a little shorter and it has to do with the custom of applying honey to the baby's upper lip uh, right after birth. Mm -hmm. So patients' expectations weren't congruent with Western medical care. The provider wasn't aware of this practice as a, a rite uh, of passage. And um, at first the midwife refused because in Japan, babies aren't allowed to have honey for the first year. So this was a situation that happened in Japan. After my explanation of this ritual, they allowed the patient to do so. And they realized that it was a ritual and that it was just at birth and that they just put a little bit on the patient's upper lip. Again, they made that accommodation to make the patients feel more comfortable and respected. Um, now they're not gonna give honey, you know, they're gonna explain and they're gonna tell patients that um, it could be dangerous before the first year to have too much honey but it doesn't go against that small right of putting honey in a, in a, you know, a baby's upper lip. So, you know, again, that's a, a very interesting one. Um, so there, I mean, there are so many, but here's one about the czar ritual. Um, mm. Providers not aware about czar in Israel, providers consider it a mental health illness uh, when the patient starts talking about spirits. Ethiopians consider this differently they consider uh, the visit of spirits as a prophecy or as a message coming to heal one. Um, so I explain this as a cultural cu custom to uh, the providers and uh, the, ask them to have a different way of looking at healing. Uh, because in, in Ethiopia, all participants uh, are going to say that they, you know, had the spirits. And it doesn't mean that they're insane. It simply means that this is something that is practiced there, just like some people interpret dreams as prophetic. Um, they will talk about spirits. It's a common, common thing in their culture. Um, so in this case, you know, pr the provider didn't misdiagnose the patient as having a, uh, a mental health illness. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a few cases about mental health where the interpreter um, actually prevented, uh, you know, a hospitalization that really wasn't called for. Uh, one of them I thought was extremely interesting because the interpreter actually um, gave a, a solution of having a curandero, um, a holy man, come to the hospital. And mm -hmm. the, the providers accepted that and said, okay, you know, if that works for the patient, we're going to allow that person to come. And the patient felt a lot better. And as we all know, you know, if we feel good or we're going to heal better and, and so forth. So I have, I have many of them. Um, and they're all very interesting. And again, some of them have to do with um, interventions on, on the spot. Others have to do with interventions outside of the interpreting arena. Um, but they're certainly intervening 
and not just for miscommunication. That's, that was uh, probably the, the, the biggest discovery for me is that uh, the reasons that interpreters are intervening culturally is not because of uh, uh, miscommunication. They're doing it for cultural competency reasons. They're doing it for medical reasons. Um, they're doing it for a better quality of care. How can uh, interpreters gain such level of uh, cultural competence uh, so that, that, that they are able to intervene at such a high level? Because when I was listening to those examples, it's just something amazing, really, because it's, you have to know all those uh, traditions or rituals or uh, just some cultural well, I would say ways of living, in, as, uh, as you described in the last case, where um, for Ethiopians, it's, uh, well, it's their way of living that they are interacting with some kind of spirits and so on. How can interpreters gain that high level of competence, well, of cultural you're, you're competence? Well, touching on a, on a subject that um, is very <laughs> important, <laughs> and that's the education of interpreters. And because uh, many medical interpreters are trained in very intensive programs. Um, they don't necessarily get enough training. And that was one of my questions. Did you, did you feel you, you got enough training in cultural issues and how to culturally intervene? And the majority of interpreters said that they didn't get enough. A lot of it is learned uh, via practice, getting more confident with your knowledge. Much of it is tacit knowledge. If you're um, a Tigrinya interpreter, you're, you're Ethiopian probably, Mm -hmm. um, so by being Ethiopian, you're going to know some of these things. And yeah. many times interpreters know this because of their upbringing. Um, but it's not the case with all interpreters. In Japan, we see uh, a different case. And one of them is that um, many of the interpreters are not necessarily from the culture of the patient. Why? Mm -hmm. Because English is still used quite a bit as a go-between language. So let's just say Hindi patients come in and and the Hindi interpreter is not available or, or isn't on the list, um, but mm -hmm. that Hindi patient speaks English, as many do, <clears throat> to a certain extent, and the interpreter will interpret in English. So a lot of times um, in Japan, there's a very high number of English Japanese interpreters, uh, just as in the US, we have Spanish uh, English interpreters, and a lot of the education, a lot of the resources, certification, everything is in those languages. So it can be tough for the interpreter to know, um, even, you know, in Spanish, for example, again, there's so many different cultures. You're just not mm -hmm. going to know everything. That, that, that's what just came to mind, yeah. Yeah, so it's true that um, we can't assume that the interpreter will know all the different cultural issues that may come up, but they do um, learn through, through the work they do to at least have an idea of when something might be happening and do what they call cultural inquiry, which is really, you know, if they have a hunch that something might be happening, they should ask the patient first. They should ask the provider and confirm it and not assume it. And that's a, a big danger in providing any kind of cultural uh, information. But to assume that because the um, interpreters don't know everything, they shouldn't engage in it um, is, is, I think, a shortcoming. And I'll tell you why, because the interpreter will always be the one in the room who will know the most about both cultures. While it might be at different degrees, they certainly know more than either party. 
So mm-hmm. allow them to use whatever they know um, in order to make that uh, rapport a better rapport, or if they don't, they should ask. And it, that's part of their training to, to do intercultural inquiry. Um, training programs need to put more attention to this, but again, they're barely teaching the basics. There's some training programs don't even teach simultaneous interpreting, note-taking, a lot of skills that are incredibly important for interpreters, not enough site translation. They just stay on the, the basics, the consecutive role plays. And how much can you learn in 40 hours? I mean, we all know it's extremely inadequate. Um, some training programs now are doing 60. Uh, the IMIA now requires 80 hours for accreditation but it's still taking forever. And even in the study, when I asked for the interpreter's education, it went everywhere from uh, 40 hours to you know 500 hours. It was all over the place. People are getting trained very differently. And some aren't even getting trained in healthcare interpreting. They're getting trained in community interpreting, which includes a whole other you know, array of services, which means this much can be given to medical. And again, healthcare interpreting or medical interpreting is very unique. It's very different from uh, other types of interpreting, and it's 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 very short-sighted for us to think, well, it's interpreting, and you know, just learn the medical lingo, learn some of the things about healthcare system, and just go right in. Um, it's one thing when you interpret for a couple of sessions. It's another when you're in a hospital day in and day out, uh, interpreting for the same patients and, and so forth. So. You know, it could be very different. Oh, I, I was wondering how do the healthcare providers actually uh, react to those cultural nuances? Because uh, from from my perspective, if I was a healthcare provider, I would probably wouldn't <laughs> be aware of all those cultural uh, gaps and uh, cultural misunderstandings. So, uh, and when I see an interpreter coming into my hospital, my expectation that he will be just doing interpreting and not any kind of cultural uh, uh, recommendations or uh, suggesting that we should change our policies or stuff like that. So uh, based on your experience or maybe the experience of people that you have interviewed, uh, how do healthcare providers normally react to this new uh, uh, understanding that interpreters are actually also cultural Mm -hmm. mediators on top of their actual work? Sure, uh, that's a really good question. And what we've seen is that institutions vary quite a bit on how culturally competent they are. Uh, I've worked for very culturally incompetent organizations and others that were extremely culturally competent. And what's interesting is uh, the organizations that are more culturally competent um, value uh, all these issues uh, to a much greater extent and look at interpreters in a much broader way. Um, and see, you know, and sees them as part of the team, part of the medical team. Now, what does happen sometimes is that interpreters who've been working for five years in an institution will be seen as part of the team. And then those interpreters that just show up occasionally that you've never seen, they're not really part of the team. They're just going to come in and they're going to be treated more like a linguist than a, a healthcare worker of your hospital. So there's that dynamic going on between staff interpreters and contracted interpreters and, you know, majority languages and minority languages. Um, They might be treated differently, but it has, I mean, it's so complex because it it depends on the interpreter. 
and their skills um, on their beliefs about this work, uh, even though 99.8% of the interpreters I interviewed believed um, that they should um, address cultural issues, two out of the 458 said that they shouldn't, that that wasn't their job. Um, so the majority believe it, but it's another thing to actually practice it. And what I found is that the organizations that had the highest cultural competency needed the least interventions. Same thing with the providers. The providers that were highest in their cultural competence really didn't need much intervention because they already knew they had been working with these patients and they didn't need to be explained the obvious because they already had treated patients from those cultural groups. Um, the providers that needed the most are the ones sometimes that, need, that don't want any intervention. They don't value it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. So they might as well not have it. And, and I have a a participant uh, quote for you that talks just exactly about this. And it was given as one of the challenges for interpreters. And it says, he says, she says the following, uh, if we're looking at staff providers who are ethnocentric and have a view of defense or that everyone has to be treated the same, I know who they are and I don't do it because I can create a more hostile environment and not one of mutual understanding. So this interpreter is pretty much saying, look, I, I can't always do it with everyone because I know some providers are extremely hard-lined. They don't want any intervention. They want to, you know, they, they might even resent the presence of the interpreter because the interpreter does create another dynamic. It does take away some of their power. There's no question to it. It takes away some of their control. They still the ultimate um, professionals on treating the patient but sometimes they just resent not having that full control. And it's, it's sad that this interpreter would simply not, you know, not engage and just not challenge the provider. And my first advice to interpreters would be to not feel intimidated by providers who are not adhering um, to competency, uh, cultural competency guidelines. They have two choices. If they're a staff interpreter, they should go to their management and, and discuss this. When I was cultural linguistic educator at Cambridge Health Alliance, which is a very culturally competent organization, interpreters came to me all the time saying, hey, Dr. Smith, you know, I mean, he just did this. I mean, it was awful. What can we do? And so I would help them in uh, doing client education. I would do a brown bag lunch. I would at times even call the supervisor of that provider. And we would take action because that was unacceptable to have culturally incompetent care. Now, you can only do that if you're a staff interpreter, because now you're actually dealing with the dynamics of the healthcare environment and how they provide care to their patients. If you're a contractor, you really don't have that option. You can't go to your uh, translation agency and say, hey, you know, can you talk to your client and let them know that Dr. Smith mm -hmm. is, you know, really inappropriate? They're not going to do it. It's their client. They just want you to interpret. Even the translation agencies are saying that because they don't want any trouble. It's understandable. Yeah. So what can you do? Those are the situations where the only thing you can do is find a way to intervene during the encounter. Even if it's in the pre-session, find a way to present yourself differently and find a way to push that envelope a little bit further because, you know, we have to do our job. Uh, I've heard interpreters say, I need permission to intervene. And I'm thinking, who needs permission to do their job? 
Does the, the patient ask permission to speak? Does the provider ask permission to ask a question? Why should we ask permission to speak? Um, who created these ideas? They're not in any standards. And sometimes we bring the deference that we might have with providers in our country and bring it to different settings, but it doesn't serve us well at all. And, you know, so we can't be intimidated, but just as there are providers who don't want to hear it, who um, many of them, they just don't know. They've been trained wrong. They've had an orientation of 10 minutes that has told them how to access interpreters and that interpreters will say everything that they say back and forth. That's pretty much all they hear. So it's based on those orientations, sometimes given by managers of interpreting services that, or individuals who don't know much about interpreting that create this false expectation. So again, everything has to do with how we portray ourselves. Even when we say things like um, ways to use an interpreter, we don't use interpreters, we work with interpreters. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to watch our own language. I, I hear interpreters all the time talking about, can we find an equivalent to this term? There is no equivalent. The term can mean many different things in different places. So stop trying to find the exact equivalent. That's, that's just parroting. Um, you know, a certain term might mean one thing in one context and something else in another. So we can also shortchange ourselves with that, that kind of um, thinking. You mentioned establishing uh, yourself uh, during your pre-session. What are some of the uh, strategies to do that so that uh, that both the healthcare provider and the patient would see you as someone who can help them to uh, mm -hmm. understand each other better and to help them solve those cultural issues that might arise. So as an authority probably, I'm not sure well, if this word fits here. <laughs> I'll tell you a term I like to use. We need to um, establish ourselves as professionals, not as paraprofessionals. Mm. And a lot of times we're told, uh, we're given little scripts of how to speak about ourselves. And before we know it, people are saying, oh, the Spanish interpreter is here. And then we internalize mm. that and we start going into an appointment and saying, oh, I'm the Portuguese interpreter. Mm. No, I'm not the Portuguese interpreter. I'm Isabel Souza. I believe this patient speaks Portuguese. That's one of my working languages. And I'm here to help you and the patient understand each other. And if there are any cultural or linguistic issues, I'll intervene to make sure that the communication is clear and that we don't have any miscommunication that could affect the care of the patient. So it's mm. about a professional standing. It's about how we speak to each party. I shake their hand. I put, I give my full name. I'm not Isabel. They never say I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Joe, your doctor. No, they say I'm Mr. Smith. Um, even with patients to create a, a professional distance because that can be difficult. Um, I will introduce myself with my full name. I will call them, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Suarez or Mr. Souza, whatever, you know, their, their last name is just to create that distance. If I see them 10 times in a year, that distance might progressively go away, but we've established that it's a professional relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times how we describe ourselves has a huge effect and how we see ourselves, our professional identity has to change. We are doing more work than interpreting. We're not getting paid for it. We're not getting recognized for it. Occasionally, we find providers that do 
you know, understand that we're doing a lot more than that. Um, and they'll ask for more. Um, mental health providers tend to be much more keen on this. Um, even lawyers understand better our work because, you know, they understand that language is their tool. Um, and somehow providers have been trained just to diagnose, to ask questions, to bring the questions down to a diagnosis, to give tests, and that's changing. The, the newer um, providers are learning how important communication is and how at the root cause of most sentinel events and, and negative health outcomes, the error that occurred or the wrong test or the wrong arm that was amputated done because there was a miscommunication. At some point, somebody miscommunicated something and that mistake was made. So I think there's a much bigger understanding now um, as to the importance of communication um, in healthcare. And that's helping us a lot. I mean, there are many ways in which our cultural work impacts healthcare. Interesting. Uh, we, we have uh, a lot of uh, interpreters and translators uh, who are watching our show uh, who are just starting out and may, they may not have so much experience as you probably have and people who, who you have interviewed. What are some of the recommendations you can give to those who are just taking their first steps in the medical interpreting? Sure. Um, I would say uh, primarily um, read everything you can on healthcare and medical interpreting. You're going to have to search both terms because we have a fragmented identity. You know, some interpreters call themselves healthcare interpreters, others medical interpreters. But if you want to find all the information, search for both. And um, read, read the, the uh, academic uh, articles are short, uh, they're interesting, and they really give you a much better perspective. There's so little that is learned in the intensive courses that I find that the continuing education serves to bridge that gap. You know, we see a lot of uh, webinars and continuing education about things that we should have learned when we first started, but since it's not there yet, you know, do your best to attend every conference. Um, so much now is online based, which makes it very easy for us. Um, the IMA, for example, provides free monthly webinars for um, members, so they can get all their CUs that way uh, without paying penny other than their membership fee. Uh, the other thing I would suggest is study your standards. Study them and know them by heart. Um, there's nothing more important than being able to say, you know, our standards of practice states the following, or mm -hmm. defending yourself even to a colleague that might not understand healthcare interpreting that well, that might, you know, think that whatever they know in conference interpreting works for healthcare interpreting. They're different fields, they're different specializations. While the linguistic components will be very similar, the non-linguistic components won't. So study um, study the standards. There's, there are standards for healthcare interpreting. There are three um, from the US. ISO is developing a standard, which is an international standard. Um, and they have incredible information. They're not being taught enough. Um, and study medical ethics too, because uh, many of the reasons for um, some of these interventions had to do with patient safety. Uh, the Joint Commission is a really important, uh, their standards are really important to understand the responsibilities of everyone who works in the healthcare system, and that includes interpreters. Um, about 15 years ago, the Joint Commission made a big discovery. They said, 
The patient's safety is not the responsibility of the provider. The patient's safety is the responsibility of everyone who is in contact with that provider. Everyone has to identify themselves to the provider. So when a provider doesn't let you introduce yourself, you know what I say? I'll say, excuse me, but the Joint Commission requires me to identify myself and my role in the care of this patient. And you know what? When you mention the Joint Commission, they see you in a whole different light. Mm-hmm. And they respect you because now they know that you know what you're doing. You're not just somebody mm-hmm. who's going to be following around and just, you know, uh, parroting without really intervening and being afraid to, to act. What happens is that sometimes interpreters, we have the, the standard of maintaining the flow of communication. That's an important standard that we attempt to do. We don't want the communication to be broken up. We want the flow to happen, right? And that goes against any intervention because when you intervene, you're going to unfortunately break that flow. So a lot of interpreters would say, you know what? I'm not going to ever intervene only if it's absolutely necessary. And they just parrot. They just go through it like a, you know, like a truck. And then the patient walks out and says, I don't understand a thing he said. And it's like, you were just a machine. How did that help the encounter? How did that enable communication? It didn't. You didn't do your job. You, you worked on the flow, but you forgot everything else. So we have to really you know, manage those different tasks um, in a way that ensures the, the safety and the health of the patient and, and quality care um, and do our jobs correctly. That would be you know, my, my basic uh, advice to interpreters, to really uh, research healthcare interpreting. It's outgrown community interpreting. It's not the same. Um, while it's part of, if you read community uh, interpreting standards or code of ethics, they don't address half of the issues that I'm talking about here um, because they're, they're geared for so many scenarios that they have to be quite diluted and they have to be quite general. Um, and they can't really talk about patients because, you know, there are so many scenarios that are involved in communities. So I think medical interpreting is now, you know, establishing itself as its own specialization with um, a much greater understanding and, and a ton of research, not just by linguists, but by providers. Clinicians have done a lot of research on interpreting, and those are the uh, most interesting studies to look at. Great. Uh, what do you think about uh, healthcare providers, apart from uh, hiring culturally sensitive interpreters and learning about culture from them? What are some other ways uh, healthcare providers can improve their understanding of different cultures and eliminate any cultural barriers in their organizations? Well, there's certainly having um, cultural competency trainings. Um, I participated in a project with uh, Quality Interactions. It's a really good online training uh, that bookmarks where patients uh, and, and providers are. And the provider has these scenarios that they have to role play. Um, very um, authentic situations that might occur. Um, I think many uh, organizations are required now to provide cultural competency trainings. And somehow, what I used to tell my interpreters is that, look, brown bag trainings are wonderful. You get to talk about the real issues. And sometimes the issues are very practical like not being able to wait for an interpreter. 
And we have to understand the provider's needs and meet those needs. And immediacy is a huge need. We can't just say, well, that provider just, you know, use their family member because they couldn't wait for us. Well, you got to provide a solution because they got to see another patient in 15 minutes. So how are we going to work this? Um, so being able to address those practical issues in any institution are incredibly important to increase the cultural competency of the organization and, the, and, the, um, and to really encourage providers to call. We had to create a system in my healthcare organization where on the medical record, the provider had to document how the language need was met. He couldn't close the medical record without filling out that box. It was a hard stop. Now, at first, they didn't like it because, you know, one more documentation that they need to do, but it raised the awareness of here are the different ways you can address it. You can't address it with a layperson unless they sign a waiver. And the waiver has to explain the risks. It has to be a, a, an informed consent, not just, mm -hmm. a, oh, I'll use my family member without knowing the risks. Mm -hmm. So that helped a lot. And, and last, I think for providers, they, they learn the best at the lear best learning moment. So during the encounter, when the issue takes place, and that's what I would tell my interpreters, that's the moment to teach them something. Not afterwards, a week later, talk about Ethiopian patients. And it's when they have the Ethiopian patient right in front of them, or when they have the, you know, the German patient in Japan. That's when that information is most crucial. That's when it should be given. So interpreters shouldn't shy away from providing the, you know, these informations or inquiring about them or getting them out in the open at that moment, because believe me, the provider will not forget that situation. They will learn it in context. It's a much higher learning experience than, you know, once a year and getting a two hour or four hour training workshop yeah. um, without having that experience. So experiential learning is much more powerful. So don't shy away from doing those, um, I have to say, though, that the biggest um, challenge is actually time. It's not providers. Providers came as the second biggest challenge, the resistant providers. The biggest challenge was time. And that's, that's a challenge that we can't control. It's a challenge that providers can't control. And they're nervous the minute you walk in the door because they have half the time to address the issue. If it's consecutive interpreting, you pretty much have half the time. So a 20-minute appointment becomes a 10 minute appointment. And you know what happens? Mm -hmm. Providers start rushing and yes. cutting off patients. So it, it's a real issue and we have to work through all these issues and we have to learn how to speak fast and do a, a really good pre-session in, you know, in a minute. But it's just part of our work. Uh, you've told us quite a lot about establishing the relationship between uh, an interpreter and the healthcare provider. What about the relationship between the patient and uh, the medical interpreter? Could you give some tips about uh, building that relationship? Well, I have to say that we have to build the rapport between the, the primary the, yeah. components versus ours. And it was very interesting when I asked this question in the survey to the same participants, they all answered that, you know, uh, enhancing the provider-patient relationship came first. And then, mm -hmm. you know, ensuring a good relationship with the patient and provider came in second. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the best way to ensure that you have a good relationship with both parties is to, again, have a professional posture of impartiality, 
of fairness, of transparency. And of those three, what's missing is transparency. Uh, transparency mm -hmm. goes a long way. If every single utterance I make to one party, I you know, make to the other. And I say, I had to ask for a clarification if it was a he or a she. If I make that effort to you know, ask for the clarification, get the answer, and before interpreting the answer, I have to explain, what did I say? What happened here? So when, when transparency doesn't happen, trust erodes. And that is sometimes why providers have a hard time. I had to um, do a lot of presentations in Japan with an interpreter. So I have had the experience of having interpreters who have these conversations and they don't interpret what they're talking about. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable for the, the individual who doesn't know. And I'll say the same for the patient. I'm sure if the patient, if you're talking to the provider about something and then you just ignore it and just give a response, mm -hmm. Patient is like, what happened here? So, you know, we can go a long way by improving our transparency. Um, and again, we just sometimes try to minimize it and con continue the flow. There's nothing wrong in, and, and saying, I'm just going to let her know and ask for a clarification and I'll give you an answer. And then you do it. So all, at all times, everybody knows what's going on. So I think mm. the best way to improve that relationship with all of them is have a professional posture and two to actually um, work on that whole issue of impartiality fairness and transparency you cannot be fair and impartial if you're not transparent mm -hmm. so those would be the my answers to that question well thank you very much Isabel it's been a very uh interesting conversation for me personally okay. i'm not a medical Thank interpreter you. but i learned quite a lot and it's it all sounds fascinating and like a lot of work uh that uh that's not actually interpreting on the linguistic part of the interpreting that interpreters have to do um i want to thank everyone who tuned in uh today i hope you enjoyed it as much as we here did <laughs> and i hope that you um, now have a better understanding of the cultural aspect of a medical interpreter's uh, work uh, please don't forget to share this uh, episode with your friends and colleagues who might be interested in the topic also check out the website of our sponsor uh, by clicking the green button below or just by going to smartcat.ai uh, or by clicking the first link in the description if you're watching this in the recording. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter so that you don't miss any future episodes. You can do so at translatorsonair.com. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, everyone. Can I say, can I say something? I forgot, Thank but if sure. you want more yeah. information about intercultural mediation, yes. I have to mention that um, it's all in a book and it's online. Mm -hmm. and it's um, hard copy, soft copy, and um, We will include the link in okay. the show notes can you send the link uh sure. to the pages of the book yes in the show notes okay. yeah, yeah. And we will we will Thank provide you. all the links in the show notes i actually wanted to ask you about the book but also just <laughs> no, not a problem i I, can't, I gave the most important information here so it's only for yeah. those who want to dive into the details and want to see all 32 case studies and so forth otherwise yeah the case studies sound very fascinating. It was very. They do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Hey, thank you so much, Isabel. Uh, thank you, everyone. And I wish everyone a great day and great evening or great night, depending on where in the world you are. Bye-bye, yes. everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.